of all the Old Testament prophets, the one who stands out to me the most will always be Jonah. Jonah is one of the most interesting figures in the Old Testament. And while he was a prophet for many years, he is best known for that regrettable episode recorded for us in the book which bears his name. Jonah was called to preach a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, which was Israel's greatest enemy. The Assyrians were a cruel, ungodly, malicious, and merciless persecutor of God's people. And for whatever reason, at this point in history, God extends mercy to them. It was not common for God to send a Jewish prophet to a Gentile nation, but this is precisely what he does And he chooses the prophet Jonah to go and deliver the message. Now, Jonah hates the Assyrians so much that he refuses God and he boards a ship headed in the opposite direction. And if you've read the book of Jonah, the first two chapters are about how this reluctant prophet runs away from God's assignment. But running from what God has called you to do is neither wise nor effective. And God stops Jonah in his rebellion by sending a terrible storm. And Jonah decides that the grave is a better destination than Nineveh. And so he has the sailors sailors throw him overboard, assuming that he would die. And then God miraculously rescues him by means of a giant fish. And we know the story that for three days and three nights he was in the belly of that fish and it vomits him up on the land and there is Jonah with no other choice but to fulfill his mission. And certainly Jonah is unique among the prophets in that he wanted his audience to refuse the message. He so hated the people that God called him to reach that his hope was that they would be destroyed. You read the other Old Testament prophets and they would plead with the crowds. In some cases, they would be weeping over the lostness of the people. But Jonah did, not only didn't want to be a vessel of God's mercy, but he, when he finally did bring the message, he hoped they would reject it. Now, why am I talking about Jonah? It's because I find a parallel with the story of Jonah and certain figures in the Gospels, namely the Pharisees. I think the sin of Jonah is also the sin of the Pharisees. These were Israel's spiritual leaders, and they were to reflect the mercy of God to the people. They were to bring the message of God to the people. They were the keepers of God's law. They were to be the shepherds over God's flock. And they were responsible for gathering God's lost and wayward sheep. But just as Jonah's heart was poisoned with sin, being embittered against the Ninevites and wanting to see them destroyed, the Pharisees had a similar infection. 
They did not long for sinners to be saved. They did not spend themselves to reach those who were devastated by sin's power. In fact, they hated them and they avoided them. The Pharisees had a smug self-righteousness that treated others with contempt, all the while glorying in their own conformity to the law. And it is this attitude toward the ungodly that was a source of constant strife between Jesus and the Pharisees. When you read through the Gospels, there's this underlying tension on nearly every page. Here He was, the long-awaited Messiah, the promised One who would come to vindicate the people of God, the Savior of Israel, and yet His harshest words were toward the people that God Sorry, the people that claim to love God the most. Here was the very God that they worshipped come to them in the flesh and they were constantly at odds with Him. This was because since the giving of the law, the various teachers and rabbis had constructed all kinds of regulations that were based on man-made traditions. And so they multiplied laws on top of God's laws, making it unbearable for the average person to maintain. They invented all kinds of extra-biblical regulations that kept people in a state of perpetual slavery. And so with the fasting and the washing and the praying and the giving, it was all so outwardly honorable to man And yet it was not pleasing to God because it was fleshly. It was not born out of a love for God and neighbor. In fact, their lack of love for their neighbor demonstrated their lack of love for God. And as you read through the Gospels, you see this recurring confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were obsessively strict in regard to diet. They never touched alcohol. And here is Jesus drinking wine, and He's no stranger to celebration. And He's so often seen at these dinners that they accused Him of being a glutton and a drunkard. The Pharisees fasted twice a week, but Jesus rarely fasted. And when He did, it was never as some kind of religious duty. The Pharisees practiced all the rabbinical traditions handed down to them, but Jesus didn't hold to their traditions. And it wasn't just that. One of the greatest sources of hostility they had toward Jesus involved the company He kept. They hated Him for who He associated with. You see, the Pharisees were separatists, and they interpreted the command to be set apart from the world meaning physically removed from those who don't hold to their narrow view of the law. So everyone they encountered, they put in one of two categories. You were either under the law, which included all of their traditions and man-made regulations, or you were amharets, which means people of the land or people of the earth. Worldly, maybe, we might think. 
And not only was Jesus eating and drinking and going to social gatherings, but he was doing it with these kinds of people, the Amharets. He would spend time with those who had no regard for their religious way of life. And not only was he spending time eating and drinking with them, he even seemed to enjoy their company. Jesus had the audacity to care about them as people. He was spending time with the very people that the Pharisees avoided. And while you see them confront Jesus over the things he taught, even more often you see them taking issue with the people he spent time with. Here he was, a so-called teacher of God, spending all this time with the undesirables of society and doing so regularly. It was scandalous to their man-made religion. So this is the context when you read the Gospels. And what Jesus must constantly do when He teaches is to deconstruct their false views. So you realize you have many centuries of false teaching. So Jesus, when He arrives on the scene, He doesn't just teach the truth. He has to tear down the lies. And so he must deconstruct and reconstruct. He must deconstruct the false religion of the Pharisees and he must reconstruct the true principles of the kingdom. He's constantly tearing down their system of dead works and then building up the true path of righteousness. That is why when you read through the Gospels, Jesus says things like, you have heard it said of old... But I say to you, you have heard it said of old, rabbinic tradition, misinterpretation of the Torah, but I say to you, and so here is Jesus deconstructing and reconstructing. You've got this collision of worldviews. You've got the false worldview of the religious leaders, and you have the true worldview of the kingdom of God and his Christ. Jesus came to reconcile man to God, and what he does in our passage is reveal to the Pharisees and to the sinners who are gathered to hear him God's true heart for the lost. Jesus must deconstruct the teaching of the Pharisees, which keeps people out of the kingdom of God, and reconstruct the truth, which welcomes them into it. And to do this, Jesus teaches a series of parables, all which emphasize the same point. God searches for and God celebrates over lost sinners. And our chapter is made up of three parables, the the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the point of the three parables is the same. Rather than God delighting in the judgment of sinners, rather than God wanting to keep them out of heaven like the Pharisees, rather than God having the same attitude as Jonah and as the religious leaders, He takes great joy in redeeming them to Himself. 
Now, we've already been introduced to this chapter. We saw last week the first two verses, which become the basis of the entire chapter. So if you look again in verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, Luke 15, the the remainder of this chapter, exists because of this exchange right here in verses 1 and 2. It's the attitude of the Pharisees that is going to prompt Jesus to correct their false understanding. And He's going to do it with the parables. What is God's attitude towards sinners? Verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, For I have found my sheep that was lost. So Jesus does here what He often does in the Gospels. And that is, He tells a story about something that everyone would be very familiar with. Shepherds were throughout Israel. And the situation He describes here would be common. A shepherd would search for a lost sheep. Sheep were a major commodity in ancient Israel. Not only was their wool used for clothing, but they were a major food source. And so, just like in our day, sheep equal money. If you have something that's a food source, that is a valuable thing. And so, sheep have value because of this. And... Because they have value, a shepherd would be very watchful over his flock. He would regularly be counting them, lest any of them wander off. And a sheep that was lost would be a sheep that was searched for. That much is obvious. Jesus talks about a flock here that is a hundred, which would be a very large flock. This is more than your average flock. And I think he uses a large number here to make a point. Even with a flock as large as a hundred, the shepherd would still leave the ninety-nine and go searching for the one. He would not just shrug and say, well, ninety-nine is still pretty good, and then wrap it up for the day. No, a shepherd will leave the flock in search of the one that is lost. Now, we've gone through a lot in the Gospel of Luke so far, being in chapter 15. We've probably talked already about sheep. But just to remind you, sheep are extremely vulnerable creatures because they are totally defenseless. Now, picture a sheep. Picture lots of other kinds of animals. Think of how many animals in the world have some kind of natural defense to protect themselves. Speed to outrun their predators, 
may be a horn or claws. Sheep have nothing. They are helpless. They are defenseless. And a sheep that wandered off would be in great danger. They would be in danger from predators. They would be in danger from exhaustion or dehydration. I know I've told you in the past that sheep are really dumb animals too. In fact, if there is a wolf that gets in the sheep pen, the sheep all huddle together and just sort of look over their shoulder and watch as their friend gets devoured. Really dumb, really vulnerable. So there are all kinds of potential risks that could endanger a lost sheep. And the shepherd who would go and search for the lost sheep realizes this could end one in three ways. He's going to find it dead, he's going to find it alive, or he's not going to find it at all. And so the shepherd would head out in search of this sheep, realizing that the time he spends searching could be in vain. And in the chance that he does find the animal, and it would be a lot of terrain to cover, he would be ecstatic to find this lost and lonesome sheep. He wouldn't despise it, right? When you lose something and you go searching for something, you don't despise it. If you despised it, you wouldn't search for it. And when you're searching for it and you finally do find it, you are not angry or embittered. You are so relieved that you found it that you have great joy over it. Notice verse 5. It says, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now why is he rejoicing? (laughs) Because he found it. And there was a chance he wouldn't find it. And it has value to him. And he's so excited he he can't contain it. He has to go tell his friends. He's relieved. He's excited. He's ecstatic. And he wants to share his joy with others. I remember some years ago when we lived on Taylor Lane, we lost one of our precious cats. My wife and I got adopted two little kittens when we were newly married. And before the kids came along, they were kind of our kids. And we really, really loved them. And still love them. Uh, but there was a point in which one of our cats had disappeared and we looked up and down the neighborhood. We asked our neighbors if they'd seen it. And day two rolls around, and that's when you start to really worry, and you put up signs around the neighborhood. And day three comes, and it seems less and less likely that you're going to find it. And we were having dinner one night, and there was a knock at the door, and there was my neighbor holding my kitty cat, Delilah, that precious little Philistine cat. She kind of had the personality of a Philistine temptress. But we loved her, and there she was. And what was my attitude? Ah, stupid cat. 
No, I said, oh, thank you, Jesus. I was excited. I think I even did a little dance of excitement as I scooped her up and held her, and I was so thankful that she was found. And that is why the shepherd is rejoicing. He found what was lost. It was valuable to him. Now everyone listening to the story is tracking completely with what Jesus is saying. It's not that complicated. Shepherding was a familiar thing in Israel and finding a lost sheep would be a familiar thing and rejoicing at finding it would be a familiar thing. And then Jesus is going to shift gears and tell him, I'm not talking about sheep at all. Look what he says in verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, Jesus draws them along with the story. He gets everyone in the crowd nodding their head and agreeing. And then He explains the point and says, I'm talking about God's love for the lost. Rather than the heavenly perspective being like the Pharisees who avoided such people, we are told that God and the angels have joy when crooked, backwards, defiled, ungodly, sexually broken, sin-sick people come to repentance and turn to God. Now, he says joy in heaven, but he's talking about God. Just like kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are interchangeable, just like in the story we're going to see of the prodigal son next week, when he comes home repentant, he says, I have sinned against heaven. He doesn't mean he's sinned against angels. He doesn't mean he's sinned against the realm in which God dwells. It's a, it's a term for God. So when he says here that there's joy in heaven, he's talking about the joy of God. God is like a shepherd who pursues those who have wandered away and when He finds them, He has joy. And the contrast between this picture of a shepherd and his sheep and the attitude of the Pharisees who were to be the shepherds of God's people is obvious. Jesus is exposing the sin of the Pharisees at the same time. God is not only willing, but eager to save these sinners and tax collectors. And the people who claim to be God's representatives on earth, the Pharisees, have no interest in them at all. How is it that heaven has joy at their recovery and they are grumbling? And so the Pharisees grumble when they see the company, the people that's around Jesus. And Jesus tells this parable and guess what that says about the Pharisees and where they belong. Not in the joy of heaven. Richard, could you turn the air off? 
the Pharisees completely missed the fact that to be a spiritual leader meant that you were a seeker of the lost on behalf of God. They were not just the keepers of the law. They were not just the teachers of the Torah. They were to seek and to save that which is lost. Twenty years ago or so, more than twenty years ago, I lived in a neighborhood in uh, San Diego called North Park. North Park was right on the border of Hillcrest, and Hillcrest is the largest gay community in Southern California. So I had gay neighbors all around me. And there was a man who moved in across the alley from us, and his name was John, and John was gay and he was, how do I put this? He would regularly put himself out there in his mannerisms, in the way he dressed. The first time I met him, he was washing his truck in the alley and he had obscenely short shorts and his mannerisms were one ones that would attract males and to be honest with you, the kind of Imagery is offensive to me as a man because that is not how God has made men. But God really gave me a heart for John. And I walked over to him and I started talking with him. And because I had a male roommate, he assumed we were gay and, and he asked if we were partners. And I said, no, we're actually we're Christians. And oh, he was like felt really weird. And I'm like, man, don't worry about it. And I got to know John a little bit. And I would see him from time to time. And at that point in my Christian life, I, I, I felt like if I didn't share the gospel with somebody in an encounter, like I, I, I somehow failed God. Like I had to close the deal. Every time I met a new person, I would try to get the gospel in there. But for whatever reason with John, I didn't. It was like the Lord just told me just to just love him. Just love him. And so I really took an interest in John. I cared for him as a person. I said, hey, man, let me take you out to dinner. And he said, why don't you come over to my apartment and I'll cook dinner. And so we had dinner at his place and had a good conversation. And uh, I, I'd see him from time to time and talk with him for 10 or 15 minutes or whatever. And, and Easter Sunday was coming up and I, I went over there. I said, hey, man, why don't, why don't you come to church with me on Easter and he said, you know what, normally I would say no, but because you're inviting me, I will go. And he said, man, my mom's not going to believe this. She's a Christian and she's been praying, me for, praying for me for years and she's not going to believe I'm actually going to church. And so the gospel was preached. It was a passionate plea to be reconciled to God. And I wish I could say John responded. He, you know, he listened to the sermon and we talked about it on the way home and we talked about sin and heaven and righteousness and how we fall short of God's glory and all the rest. And 
I don't know where he is today, and that was over 20 years ago. Maybe a seed was planted. I still pray for him sometimes when I think about him. But that's God pursuing sinners. You see? That is God. If you ever have a burden for somebody, if you ever have a desire to reach someone with the gospel, if you ever have a passion for a certain people group in the world, you know, God gives different people a different passion. That's, that's God. That's the shepherd who is looking for the lost sheep. And he does it through you. And he does it through me. I mean, that's not coming from you. Any love I had for this person was not coming from me. This person was offensive to me in my natural self because I am a sinner. And so if God gave me a love for this person, it's because God has a love for this person. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. And so the sinner is like the sheep. They're lost. They're helpless. The sinner that, that God rejoices in is the one who recognizes his helplessness. He understands the danger he, he's in. In. He sees his weakness, he sees his need, he sees his desperation, and he's trusting himself into the arms of the great shepherd, resting in him until he brings him home. And so as you interact with people in this world, and God gives you a burden for certain people, just be mindful of that. This is the, the searching God who has, who has a, a love for his lost sheep. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why He came. And that's why He has raised you up in part. So that you can do that work on His behalf. Now, I don't know about you, but I've read this for years. And verse 7 has always made me just scratch my head. Because Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I've always read that and been like, what? Are there really people who need no repentance? Are there already righteous people out there? And Jesus is saying they're already restored because of their own righteousness? Now, we know that the Scripture is clear. There is none righteous, no, not one. We know from the teaching of Jesus Himself that none are righteous. So why would He say this? Now, I think He's being ironic here. I think Jesus wants to create a, a contrast to emphasize the joy of heaven to emphasize how loved the sinner is, that he's making a point that even if there were righteous people in heaven, like the Pharisees think they are, let's say in, 
in this world, there are righteous people already, and we'll, we'll say they're the Pharisees because they're the frozen chosen and they think they're righteous already. Jesus says, there is more joy in heaven over one of these tax collectors and drunkards and prostitutes coming to Christ than over the 99 of the Pharisees. So if there were 99 Pharisees in heaven who were there on their own merits, who were so righteous that they belonged there, Jesus is saying, God has more joy over one of these who you reject than over all of the others. That's his point. I don't think he means to teach here that there are righteous people in the world. That would contradict so much of the Scripture. I think it's meant to portray God's love for sinners such as these. So just as this story is settling in, okay, the lost sheep, the lost, the, the shepherd who goes after the lost sheep and he rejoices and it's really a picture of God in heaven, he rolls right into another parable making the same point in a slightly different way. <clears throat> Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in this case, you don't have a wandering sheep. You have a lost coin. It's very similar to the first story. Something is lost. Something is sought. Something is found. And the result of that finding is joy. Now, this silver coin is called a drachma, and that would be equivalent to a day's wage in that day. This is a day you don't have retirement funds, you don't have IRAs, you don't have 401ks, you don't even have savings accounts. So, you would keep your money at home, and this was probably all this woman's money to live on. Ten coins. And much to her dismay, when she goes to count them, one of them is missing. Now, what does she do? Does she just shrug and say, well, nine's pretty good? No, she is looking under the mattress. She's flipping over the futon. She's looking in the crack of the lazy boy recliner. She's sweeping the house until she finds it. And what's her attitude when she finds it? She doesn't say, you stupid coin, I hate you. No. You don't despise something that you're looking for. You rejoice at the finding of it. Because there is value. The Pharisees would see these sinners and they would say there's no value there. Look at Jesus hanging out with these people. There's no value there. But Jesus says there is. 
Jesus shows that there is by coming and offering to them the kingdom. Now, I want us to make sure we have an accurate view of ourselves lest we fall into one extreme or the other when we think about ourselves. There's an error which the modern church falls into in which we have such an elevated view of ourselves that we think this whole thing is about us. So we read the Bible and we think it's about us. We sometimes have a distorted view of God and think He's going to be really miserable without us. It's like the lyric of a popular worship song a few years ago. You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. As if God is just so lonely and incomplete. As if God just is not fulfilled until He has people to love. Now that is not a biblical concept. That is not a true picture of God. God lacks nothing and we cannot add or take away from God. God does everything for His glory including create, creating humanity in the first place and it's not because He was lonely and not because He was incomplete. So we want to avoid falling into that ditch. But I think an opposite error would be that from a divine perspective, we think that there's no value in us at all. We're merely disposable creatures who God has little interest in and He has no delight in whatsoever. And that is also false. The fact that Jesus tells these stories about recovering a lost item, which represents the sinner, and the joy of that person in its recovery, which represents God, tells me that we do have value and that God does delight in us. And this is important to understand, not only to have an accurate view of yourself in light of God, but to have an accurate view of your neighbor. What is your attitude towards unbelievers? What is your attitude? Do you have a burden for people? Do you have a burden for your neighbors who are lost? Do you have a burden for a people group in the world? I think of the, the Beast family who was visiting here recently and and if you came to my house that Wednesday night, you heard them tell their story about how they, they took seven of their kids and moved to Kenya and started this orphanage and church and school. And, and God had given Jeff a burden for the people in Kenya. It's just everywhere he looked, he just, that's where God was pointing him. Do you see value in people? And when I say people, I mean all people. All kinds of people. Or are you like the Pharisees and you say, there's no value there. Or you see this people group, there's no value there. But that is not God's heart. 
You will never lock eyes with someone who doesn't matter to God. Are there texts that say that God is angry with the wicked? Yes. But it's not His heart to condemn the wicked. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he should turn from his way and live. So I think it's appropriate to ask, what is your attitude toward the lost? What is your heart like toward unbelievers? All kinds of unbelievers. It's a very similar application to what we had Last week, I asked what was the tilt of your heart? Was it to to them or away from them? I've shared this story before, and we will conclude with this. Forgive me, but it's been five years, and your memory is terrible. There was a Baptist church somewhere in the New England area who fired their pastor for never preaching on judgment. They thought he was soft. They thought he was a man pleaser. And they told the denomination, send us a fiery hell and brimstone preacher. And so the director in charge of these things sent them a man who preached fiery messages about hell and judgment. And after three weeks, they ran him out of town. So they contacted the denomination and said to send them another one. We want a man with a spine. We don't want one of these soft, man-pleasing preachers. Send us someone who will preach about judgment and hell and is not afraid to take a stand and have a spine. So they sent him another one, and he only lasted one Sunday. So they contacted the denomination again and insisted on another one just like they described, and he sent one more, and this man lasted 23 years and died serving that church. And the director of placement still worked with that denomination, and he heard of his death, and he remembered that church and how hard it was to find them the right man, and he was puzzled over this, and so he contacted the church and said, I have to ask, Why did this pastor last so long and the others you ran out of the church? And they said, when this man preached to us, he preached about hell and judgment just like the others. But he did so with tears in his eyes. And we could tell that he didn't want us to go there. You see, you can share the truth with your neighbor. You can preach the gospel open air. And I've seen open air preachers who talk. They speak the truth about the Bible. There's a judgment day. There is a hell coming. But they preach with a kind of glee in their voice that all the people before them are going there. And so you can have the truth of God and you can proclaim the truth of God, but you can be a Pharisee. There's a kind of religion that is devoid of the love of God and the love of neighbor. 
So I ask you, do you find value in people who are lost? Does your heart ache for them? Do you desire to minister to them? Are you asking God, Lord, give me an opportunity, give me an open door, give me a willing heart that I might be able to share some of your love with this person? Or is your attitude that everyone can just go to hell and let's get heaven started already? Get us out of here. Jonah was a reluctant prophet who grumbled at the mercy of God. The Pharisees refused certain kinds of people and they grumbled while heaven rejoiced. How about you? Our gracious Father, as we go through this life, this pilgrimage, this pilgrimage, this desert wandering, you place us in certain situations, you put us around certain people, you call us to be a light on a hill. And oftentimes, Lord, we are fearful. Sometimes, Lord, we are unwilling. And hopefully, very rarely, we are like the Pharisees. But I pray, Lord, that as we see the love that you have for sinners, as we see the heart of God in the midst of this passage, that we would be reminded that we are to reflect your heart. We are to rejoice along with heaven. We are to speak about the God who loves the lost. Please help us, Lord, to be bold, to be caring, to reach out to those who are perishing. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the boldness and the love to do it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.